G'day humans. Do your research, they say. Do your own research. Watch YouTube videos, listen to podcasts, question the mainstream narrative, open your eyes. Is that the path to wisdom or is it the path to madness? Can it perhaps be both? I've lately become something of an agitator against taking too much personal responsibility for understanding every issue. The world is just too complicated. Uh, We need to outsource most complex facts about the world to people who spend their whole lives studying them. It is just not rigorous. It feels rigorous, but it's not rigorous to see an academic paper tweeted by someone with a PhD on Twitter and to let that outweigh the considered opinions of the mainstream establishment, which knows how to put that paper in context and what the countervailing evidence might be and how to weigh that paper against others that contradict it and how to adjust for statistical anomalies that I might not be well-trained enough to consider. We just can't do all of that by ourselves. We can't all be experts in everything. But on the other hand, we also don't want to be sheeple. We don't want to be gullible in believing everything we're told. So what is the answer, especially in a world where fewer and fewer people trust fewer and fewer sources of information about the most basic challenges that we face, like pandemics and climate chaos and democracy itself? One place to start is by listening to all sides, but not giving them equal credence, uh, by respecting the consensus, but not pillorying the dissidents, by refusing to talk down to the irrational and by calmly finding a common ground of reason and compassion with each other. So this is a podcast about not glossing over disagreement, but encouraging it. In other words, about having conversations that are sensitive and respectful and common ground seeking, but sometimes inevitably, constructively uncomfortable. Today on the show, a delightful educator of science, Luke O'Neill, Professor Luke O'Neill, Professor of Biochemistry at Trinity College Dublin. He's a celebrated Irish popularizer of science. Uh, he, as well as being an immunologist himself and a, a widely acclaimed scientist, uh, he also engages with the public a lot on scientific topics, especially in Ireland and abroad. He's got a weekly science slot on the Irish national radio station, News Talk. He won uh, a Book of the Year award in 2020 for uh, a book called Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Science. Can you imagine imagine any uh, any more Irish title than that? Uh, and uh, he wrote a, a memoir, like a diary covering COVID-19, uh, which was entitled Keep Calm and Trust the Science, a remarkable year in the life of an immunologist. I just wanted to get his thoughts about science literacy and how we can all get a little bit more rational. Please enjoy Professor Luke O'Neill. breakfast and I'll see if we've got some levels. I'm having a large cup of coffee. <laughs> I it's, suppose at 7am it's, it's unreasonable for me to 
uh, ask you what you had yeah, for breakfast. It's unfair, isn't it? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not having the full Irish. Let's put that. No, <laughs> <laughs> very good. Uh, all right. Uh, have you got me? Yes, you sound very clear. I must say. Oh, so beautiful. Sounds... I've got it. I've, I've, I'm in. A, I'm in a studio, mate. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. You see now. What do you got? Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an interesting couple of years for uh, science and the public understanding of science because I, I feel like. A few years ago, it meant something to say, you know, follow the science on something. And, you know, you could be, yeah. I suppose the main fault line might be climate science. And, uh, and now I feel like when I hear someone say, you know, uh, well, you know, let's just follow the science. I don't know whether they mean let's trust the institutions that are telling us the science or yeah. if they mean institutions can't be trusted and I've done my own research and here's data that I've found that contradicts the mainstream narrative. What What is science and what does it mean to trust it? Well, you're right. It's incredible what's happened in a way for obvious reasons. Scientists, I mean, in Ireland, uh, every single news item had a scientist kind of think, discussing COVID, obviously, you know, so it's been in people's faces. I it's hate to break it to you, but it. it wasn't just Ireland. It was... Uh... I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, all over. In fact, I've never seen so many immunologists becoming household names. That's right. That way, yeah. all over the world. And yeah. public health bureaucrats um, who'd give press well, conferences every single day. You know, we'd all huddle yeah, around. Yeah, exactly, that's right. In, in, here, we, here in Sydney, we would huddle around the television at a, precisely 11 a.m. every day yeah. for more than a year, and the premier of the state would stand up, and then she'd be followed by the, you know, the chief health uh, officer, and you know, we'd, yeah. be, we'd be gambling on what the number of cases would be, and. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know this obsession that happens. Yeah, yeah. it's a strange business that, that the world, and I've been doing science stuff for years in the media, you see. So, so now, now that it's all calmed down here anyway, we're back to normal yeah. science stories, which nobody listens to. You see, yeah. so, so. <laughs> yeah, unless there's a penguin who just had sex in a zoo or something. Yeah, and you're, that's, you're, that's, that's 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 penguins or yeah. that kind of yeah, that, that, feel that, good that, story. That, that sort of stuff. Yeah, always, always. No, but there was always a minority of well-meaning people listening to science and discussing it and buying the books in the bookshops and all that kind of thing. You know, there was always a, a reasonable percent of people, you might say, doing that. But uh, one thing that got me, Joshua, was I, 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 a book of mine came out last year in Ireland. It's called Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Science, you mm. see, it's a title. Yeah. And that outsold lots of other books. And the publisher was amazed because you wouldn't normally see a science book outselling, say, Obama's autobiography or whatever. So that shift towards science has, has definitely been evident. Right. Um, and 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 my my job is to say what science is. You see, it's empirical, based on data. That's what science is, really. A hypothesis. You do an experiment, you get data, and and that that's now entered the frame, hopefully. But you're quite right. The vast majority of people are professional scientists. So how they how they're engaging with this is still an ongoing process. Is the way I would put it. I'm yeah. hoping in the long run it'll it'll matter. You know. But I mean, these people are, will take science more. I mean, it's easy when it's cut when it's a cut and dried thing, but the problem is, especially in an unfolding, uncertain climate like a pandemic, yeah. the you know it's it's easier said than done to say you've got a hypothesis and then you get data and you test the hypothesis and you yeah. you follow where that leads because the layperson is not necessarily well trained enough to understand all the mitigating counter effects that that particular data set might include. And to understand it in the context of all the other peer-reviewed studies that are going on, especially when there is genuine uncertainty in the scientific community. So I feel like some of the most, quote-unquote, scientifically-minded people, in terms of the people who think that they're doing their own science, are actually the most misled because they'll see something on social yeah. media which will be from a really, from a, you know, a, great, a legit authority, but we don't know how to interpret it, offset it, Very contextualize true. it. 
Very true. And, and you're stuck then trying to trust the so-called experts and voices you might trust, you see. And then that, that comes down to a question of trust more than empirical evidence. Exactly. You know? and, and that and that's the way people have to be, because I, I spent eight years training to be a scientist, remember? So we can't expect my next door neighbor who isn't a scientist to have the same level of of kind of uh, of in-depth uh, knowledge that I would have. For and instance, I mean, we, quite right. with all due respect, we may not even ha expect you to have the same level of in-depth uh, knowledge of another field of science. And this is another no, exactly. thing. You'll see people with PhDs coming forth and, you know, spouting some sort of vaccine misinformation nonsense. Yeah. And their followers will say, will say, look, I mean, this is a highly credentialed individual. And that yeah. makes it, that makes it tricky. Very tricky. Very, and, and then it comes down to just a, a feel almost, I think, in a sense. It's very hard, isn't it? I, I hear exactly what you're saying. I mean, all, all I would ever do in the media is try to give the evidence that, that now, you know, and, and if, it, if I sent any tweets out, I'd always put a link to the paper and do my best to say, here's the evidence. But you're quite right. These are very technical things, aren't they? So, so you need the so-called expert to be the mediator between the complexity of the science and then, and then the general audience. And that, that, that's a tricky, especially with this, you're right. Normally before the pandemic, There'd be a, a, a discovery made. It was pretty definitive and you could describe it with confidence that this, this is what was found in this lab and this is what this discovery might mean. With this one, it was changing all the time because mm. you knew, in the famous words of the Big Lebowski, knew shit, shit keep, kept coming to light. <laughs> so, so that was the tricky bit here. And then how do you convey that, you know? And, That's and, right. And I, I think what's, what's good is it's, it's like my day job anyway. If I go to a scientific conference, I'd hear a speaker. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't trust that guy. You know it, I don't like his lab or his date. Look, that's that's the scientific process. It's, it's always about debate, read, you know, and finally get into some kind of bottom line. And the good news is we did get the bottom lines with this with this virus. We know a lot about it. We know a lot of information. We know about various approaches to to study it and make the vaccines and therapies and all kinds of things, you know. So so I think for me, uh, as you would imagine, given that I'm a zealot for science, uh, science has delivered on this one hugely mm. for us as a, as, a, as, a, as a planet. Well, science may have, but the scientific conversation may not have. That's true. That, well, that got very garbled and there were lots of, you know, as you say, misinformation and chewing and very reputable people saying certain things that, that, that I, I would have said, I don't like the look of that, you know, for instance, given my scientific training, but, but a lay audience wouldn't be able to say that maybe. So it's a really, a really difficult one, isn't it, in a sense? And this applies to many scientific topics, not just COVID. But yeah, but I mean, this one in particular bumps up against our real lives in a way that many scientific topics don't, yeah. uh, you know, when you, you, so you come up with the vaccines and now we have to convince 8 billion people or 6 billion people, however many people might be eligible for it to all have something injected into them. And then, yeah. you know, that's a proactive thing that we have to do. So I've got four year old twins and right. I'm frankly somewhat relieved that they weren't five at precisely the point that they would yeah. have been eligible to get vaccinated just because they've had COVID and it was fine. And, you know, I'm not sure what the, what the risk balance would have been between yeah. the threat of COVID to a five-year-old versus vaccine side effects for a, a five-year-old. You know, it's a, it's a no-brainer if you're over the age of 40 or something, but I think people got, yeah. got concerned about the state requiring everybody to do something in the absence of absolutely ironclad information. Yeah, oh, very understandable, especially for parents and kids. That's 100% understandable as an anxiety. And if you don't trust your state, you're in trouble, aren't you? You know, why would I believe my government if I don't trust my government to do certain things? And that became an issue in lots of countries where the vaccine uptake was low, even for adults. Yeah. Says, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't trust that the guy on the telly telling me this stuff, you can get lost kind of territory, you know? Uh, again, I'll, I'll, 
what I think is you, you, you got to appeal to people's sense of reason and when being reasonable, that's the word I often use, you know, and they can't look at all the data, can they? The endless Pfizer trial data with 500 page document that that's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, so they end up having to trust experts then. So yes, I like trusting their doctor. If, you, if you're sick and you go to your doctor and suggest something for you, you might actually trust the doctor and say, I'll go for that, you know, but it, again, it comes down to that word trust in a way. Yeah. How, how's the trust doing in Ireland? Yeah, we were very happy here overall. I think we got to 97% vaccination of our adults population wow. uh, with the booster and everything, which is great, you know. Uh, children, uh, I'd say it was the same as you guys in a sense, there was a bit of reluctance here and there, but many parents still vaccinated. They, they, they accept that this is just another vaccine, that they're giving their kids loads of vaccines anyway. Now, I know it's new, that that was where the anxiety would come from. But by and large, Ireland did extremely well. I think we're third in Europe for our vaccine uptake here. Terrific. Which is great. And, I, and, and Josh, I, I see that as evidence of a functioning, educated democracy. Mm. You see, so it's evidence that people are reasonable here in Ireland. Not everybody, obviously, which is fair enough. Uh, but the majority, they, they just took this on faith a lot of the time and went for it, you know. Interesting that you mentioned functioning, educated democracy. Um, what do we need to do to make sure that we are more functioning, more educated and more democratic? Yeah, education, 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 great <laughs> phrase, isn't it? You know, you've got, you've got to have a very high level of an education in any country always. And I'm an educationalist as well, obviously, you know. In Ireland, they do science up to the age of 16 in school here. So it's quite older than some other countries, you know. So all you can do is educate people in school. How to look at the complexities we're discussing, to be honest. Like, like people have to decide now for themselves based on what they're seeing in social media, whether they got, whether they believe something or not, don't they? And, and education helps that it starts with education really, I think is, is, is the starting point for all of this. The purpose of education, one definition, Josh, is to make people reasonable. Mm. It didn't work, of course, in many countries, mind you, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's the goal of education really is to make people reasonable. That's all you can hope for with an education system at one level. And, 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 and as I say, in Ireland, we seem to have achieved that, which we're very, very happy about, really. And yet the people who cite the most statistics and the most data are sometimes the most unreasonable because they're so well, down the rabbit hole. You know, I mean, I can't remember who yeah. said it recently, um, but, you know, if, if, you meet, if you encounter someone who knows every single minute detail about what happened on the 22nd of November 1963, was it, when JFK was shot? Uh, yeah. then you can bet that that person is a conspiracy theorist who is not, yeah. you know, as connected or the moon landing or something. If they know precisely what the material that the flag was made out of was or something, then they're likely yeah. to be actually less reasonable than someone who takes it on faith. That's true. Yeah. Well, the question there is what gives rise to unreasonableness in a way, you know, and it's a very complex human trait. You know, it can be, it's based on human psychology, that dreaded aspect of science, which is always very hard to pin down. But some people who are highly educated can be extremely unreasonable. Mm. So the two the two don't directly correlate necessarily. Again, you're looking for statistics on average. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> if you give people a good education on average, they should be more reasonable. But there'll always be zealots. There'll always be mavericks. We like mavericks in science, by the way, who, who kick the tires a lot. That's not a bad thing in science, by the way, you know. But it always, for me, it comes down to just show me your evidence. Show me your data, which would happen to me at a 
professional scientific conference anyway. You know, you can say what you like, of course, you know, it's yeah. a free, free world, hopefully, but you got to back it up with data. And then I might say, oh, maybe that guy's right. In, in my business in immunology, the science has changed over decades because again, new shit comes to light. If you're reasonable as a scientist, you accept that, you know, mm. and then change your opinion, change your opinion on something. You know, the, the, most adults have trouble changing their minds or opinion on something, which is, which is difficult. That seems to be part of our tribal evolutionary origins in a way. You can't back down, can we? No. Myself and a yeah. pride, yeah. myself included. Yeah. Well, and then it becomes then it becomes a tribal thing, doesn't it? And you know, and and a face saving thing as much as uh, all the pursuit of reason. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And that can can dominate. That can trump if I can use the word. Yeah. Oh oh dear. Yeah. See that? Yeah. Yeah, We're sticking that joke. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about education then, Luke, because it's interesting. I I am now a very scientifically minded person, and I'm fascinated by it. But that was because. In my teens, I discovered Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins and Richard Feynman, and yep. and I, my eyes were opened through books. Science at school, I hated. It was all petri dishes, funny, yeah. and you know, it was always sort of almost rote learning and the table of the elements and everything. What I loved being a sort of poetic humanities uh, namby pamby was the philosophy of science, the majesty of science, yep. the poetry of of science, and I sort of wish that that got taught in school. Yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the trouble is. Science is 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 full of facts. Is the problem, you know? <laughs> Let's face it. Like I could describe the immune system to you and give you all these awful dry facts about bore the arse off you, you know. <laughs> so, so as an educator, how do I make that interesting to kids? Because I, I still lecture in university, you see. So, but you're right. That's that's it's disappointing when that happens in a sense. And again, I'm a huge fan of science teachers. And in Ireland, I'm actually, wait well, yeah, this, Josh, I'm president of the Irish Science Teachers Association. You're not the president of the Humility Society of Ireland. No, that's, that, no, not, not yet. No, <laughs> that's, I'm, I'm aspiring to be that. Yes. <laughs> got a long way um, to go yet. Not went together, right? Yeah, but no, I mean, and, and the science teachers are a great bunch. I was at the conference two weeks ago, and this is the very thing they talk about: how mm. to make, how to turn turn kids onto science. There's ways to do it. It sounds as if you had the uh, a, a very unpleasant experience in a way, you know. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, maybe that it wasn't age, unpleasant. It was just you know, it was just nothing. It was just blah. It was nothing. just like what's yeah, inspiring it didn't, about didn't it. Didn't strike you. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I was lucky. I, I had a great science teacher in school, which is the reason I became a scientist. A guy called Fran Mooney, he was the image of Shaggy and Scooby-Doo. That was how I remember him. And, and he really inspired me, you know, so I was lucky in that sense. You know, I, I had a good teacher in school. Let's come back to the original question of what science actually is. I mean, you said that it was data, but, but let's put it in a historical context because people have had information for a very long time. And it's not, it's not the case that simply accumulating information is going to yield a strong scientific theory. So what, what comes first, like the data or the theory and what makes a theory good? It starts with curiosity. You, you want to know something and it can be anything. It can be dinosaurs, stars. Science isn't about discovering a new widget, remember. That's technology. So science is just about being curious and asking a question. So you come up with a question and you try and answer it. Now, the way we answer questions usually is through experiments and we design experiments to help us answer the question. And if the experiment then agrees with our hypothesis, we get to a bottom line. And then and we say, you know, E equals MC squared or whatever you want to call it, you know. So, so in other words, that, that, that's the scientific process in action. And then the big question is what constitutes evidence? And, and in my lab, I need three or four independent lines of evidence to support the bottom line. You know, some labs might need one, you know. So, so it's about the strength of the evidence ultimately to support what the bottom line is about some particular 
aspect of the natural world. And that really, that really captures what the scientific process is about. And it, it, it is all about the, 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 the strength of the evidence and the, the type of experiments you do. That's why it takes you eight years of training, really. See, eventually you want to become an independent scientist to design your own experiments. That takes training, you know, it takes mm. years of uh, effort, really. And then, then you can call yourself a card carrying scientist in a sense, because you can do, <laughs> you can do discovery stuff, you know, so it does take time to learn. It's like any other skill, really. What got you into it, Luke? Well, as I initially, it was just the joy of us with, with a great teacher reading. And then the more than yourself, just I began reading those books. I remember reading Isaac Asimov. He was a big hero of mine mm. as a teenager. You know, he wrote, actually, he was a great science fiction writer, of course, but he also wrote A Guide to Science, which I vividly remember reading at the age of about 18. And I think, oh, I like this, you know. I think a lot of it to me, Josh, was uh, giving me um, a sort of reassurance, maybe is one word for it, to explain the the enormity of existence. You know, I, got, I, yeah. I just enjoyed learning this stuff. And what are you with Dawkins and these? I love Carl Sagan as well. I mean, those guys, they're about really, they're, they're giving, we enjoy it because we get a sense of intellectual stimulation, of course, but secondly, a sense of wonder. And then thirdly, it explains the complexity and enormity of things as well for me. So mm. that, that was a jump off point in many ways for me. And did you find the fact that it explains things? You just said it gives, it gave you reassurance. Um, I mean, most Irish people get their reassurance presumably from their faith. Uh, was what was your not anymore not anymore <laughs> that's the way it was the only you've never seen it in my lifetime you've never seen a country change as much as ireland when oh, i was a kid yeah yeah it was 95 percent of uh, observance of the catholic faith now it's about 10 percent. you know so that's gone out the right. window um but you're right though yeah for for decades here that the church and religion provide the same same function anyway I, I don't see any difference there we're all human beings after all and so some would use other things to give them comfort. For me, I use science as the way to think of it. You know? Was that a change? Were you raised religious? I was. Yeah, we all were. Well, they shot you, you see, if you didn't go. It's not as a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I was, yeah, well, like anybody else. But, but I, when I became a teenager, inevitably, I went, what is this shit? <laughs> you mm. know, now mm. I've got respect for people. That if that, that's their thing, that's fine. They don't shove it down my neck. I don't mind, you know. Um, but that was a funny one, yeah. So, so it started. All of us went through that religious experience, and then we came out the other end, hopefully relatively intact. You see. So, and when, when you say one. when you say you don't mind if people believe that, as long as they don't shove it down your neck. I mean, the 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 yeah. the case of a Richard Dawkins or a Sam Harris uh, would be, or a Christopher Hitchens would be, it, they can't help but shove it down your neck because uh, there is a there, there's something corrosive to the whole society and to the whole uh, national or global conversation about people founding such fun fundamental ideas on unreasonable beliefs or on a commitment to historical events that are so obviously unlikely at best and ludicrous uh, at, at worst. Do, do yeah. you share that concern? I, I, I'm inclined to be more sympathetic towards people if, if they decide to believe in certain things. That's their business, really, you know, and if it, if it gets them through the night, that's fine by me, you know. Now, now, if you're a scientist, you go, oh, that, that can't be true. Any of that? Why would somebody believe that? It becomes, if it becomes malignant and begins harming others, then that's, that, that's, that's disastrous, you know. And we've seen that through history in a way. And then maybe that's where they're coming from in that regard. Yeah, well, I think uh, they also the, feel like it trains your mind to to get used to taking things on on too little evidence and to yeah, not be rigorous that, about your thinking. So it makes us makes it harder for us to come to common solutions about things like the climate crisis if you're if you're sort of contaminated by the idea that you can just muddle along without thinking too carefully about the most fundamental things that you believe. Well, it's funny as you say that yesterday, Josh, I saw a great, someone sent me this poster along the lines of education is no good. It destroys your faith in God. 
So that kind of thing, you know, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. The, again, that that's the malignant side of this in a sense. And I can see exactly where they're coming from. The, 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 the Dawkins will be of the view, as you know, that it was overall a, a huge negative, all this, you see, for us as a species on Earth kind of thing, you see. Yeah. Um, but that, that, that takes away from the fact that for many, it's a very positive thing and it can be very positive. I mean, humanism is one way to do it. Plus Jesus or whatever, you know, so <laughs> if you keep the humanism part, you can't argue, you can't argue with that. Can you? you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the other stuff that, 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 that that's definitely a challenge. Yeah. So if you were inspired to go into science by this science teacher, how did you end up specializing? Why did you end up uh, an immun immunologist? Yeah. Well, I, then I said I had to go, I want to go to university mainly to have a few beers and the usual kinds of things. Um, and I picked science because I loved it from school. And then I got drawn towards biology. I mean, to me, biology is the ultimate science because it explains life itself. And that was the, in the back of my mind, trying to understand life, you know, and then again, just through, I was in university and I began to specialize just out of interest, really ended up in immunology because, um, I realized that the basis for most diseases has a dysfunctional immune system, you know, at the background somewhere. So I thought that'd be good to work on. If I work, if I work in the immune system, I might be able to help come up with ways to treat diseases. My first disease I worked on was Crohn's disease and inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. And then I moved into rheumatoid arthritis and neck. These, these are all diseases where the immune system goes crazy and begins attacking your own tissues. Still on, we still don't know why that's still a mystery. They call autoimmune, as you probably know. So, so that, that got my imagination, basically. Here was a, a very complicated world, which I could do science in and make discoveries, which is my first thrill to make a discovery. And then if that could be useful to design new medicines, then that would be the ultimate dream. And I still haven't got there yet, Mike. Still, still <laughs> plugging away. But, <laughs> and when you say that these kinds of diseases, these inflammatory diseases, uh, we don't really know what causes them. And we're not entirely sure how to cure them, do we? I have a close family member who had ulcerative colitis, which is very similar to yep. Crohn's disease. So you'd be very familiar with that. And, um, you know, was on a, a powerful drug to combat it and gradually through lifestyle changes was able to wean himself off that drug and is now free from it. What's happening yep. there? It's very difficult. I mean, though, though I've, I've been working on these things for over 35 years now myself, you know, and we still don't really know. It's a shocking thing. We've learned a bit about the component parts of the immune system to go wrong. So we, we know some of the, the sort of, uh, you know, cell types and some of the chemicals, the, the, the immune molecules that are made, you know, they're overproduced in these diseases. So one idea would be to block those and ramp them down. You might relieve some of the symptoms. And that, that's what the drugs do. But you're right, though. We've no way to stop it starting. Uh, we've no way of predicting its course, many of these diseases either. So these, these are still big mysteries, you know, and again, very active. They're so important because they're so common and, and it's so debilitating, as you would know from your own yeah. connections there. Yeah. So, so we need, we need to do better. And now there has been advances in rheumatoid arthritis. It was a huge advance in the 30 years they, they did discover new ways to block some of these mediators that go crazy in that disease. And they, 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 you don't see people ending up in wheelchairs anymore, rheumatoid, whereas you did when I started, you know? So there has been some progress, but, but we do need to stop them at source really. And a, a, another example, Josh, is a big breakthrough about a month ago was MS might be caused by Epstein-Barr virus. Now, if that's really? true, oh yeah, you can now vaccinate, of course, against huh? MS. Wouldn't that be tremendous, you know? Oh, wait, so, would we be for... vaccinated against that already? No. No, no, no. And it's, it's, it's a mystery. It's very common, Epstein-Barr virus. We've all probably had it. It causes, I think, a glandular fever. If, if you're a teenager, if kids pick this up, you know, uh, but for some reason with the right, the wrong genetic background combined with that virus, you might develop MS. So is, so this, is the suggestion that, uh, that the, uh, the glandular fever could trigger MS initially, or that if you've had glandular fever in the past, you're susceptible to it? 
No, no, it looks as if, like most people have had Epstein-Barr virus and yet MS it, it isn't that common. I mean, it's maybe one or two percent in Ireland, which, which is quite high. So it'll be a combination of your, your genetic background, then you get infected and that, that might progress into MS. You know? I'm just trying to figure um, out if I'm at higher risk, of if I can get vaccinated or if I'm at higher risk because I have had the virus but yeah, for yeah. 15 years. Right. No, I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah, that, that if you haven't got, well, then, then we don't know. I mean, it's MS can develop later in life. I mean, it's, this, this discovery, there's a massive analysis happening now, of course, of this, to see if this holds up, you see. It's a bit like um, human papillomavirus and survival cancer. Mm. Yeah, there's a vaccine for that. Discovered in Australia, by the way, Ian yeah, Fraser. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was a great discovery, that vaccine. Now, not, not everybody who gets HPV develops cancer. So it's a bit like that. You yes, know, I see. There's something else going on. There's something else And wasn't there, there also a, a, break, a similar breakthrough with ulcers? There was that other famous Australian. Dare yeah. I give the Aussies credit? It's horrendous <laughs> now, just for crying out loud. Not only are we no, good at sport, sport, but uh, you know, also well, uh, inflammatory. I'll tell you one thing, Josh, and this this isn't to blow smoke up your country's ass necessarily, but uh, there's been fantastic immunology in Australia for decades, you know, and we're all in awe of the place of the Weehai, the Walter Eliza Hall Institute in Melbourne. That's a world class place for that. Major discoveries were made there that have contributed directly to human health, which is my dream to do that mm. myself, you know. Yeah, we're not, all, we're not all crocodile dundees. You know, some no, of us have right, brains that's too. Right. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but Barry Marshall, he's a hero, as you know, because nobody believed him. A true maverick, again, we love that, you know, and he, he proves it himself by taking this bacteria, Helicobacter. So just explain ulcer, it to people, because not everyone will know this. So ulcers back in the day, and my dad had ulcers, this was supposed to be some kind of a, a stress-related thing, or, yeah. you know, some sort of a, a mystery. And when someone, when this Aussie proposed that there might be a bacterial cause that was yeah. considered to be ludicrous but what what happened yeah well exactly when I, again when i was younger um and also as a middle-aged man too many martinis wasn't meeting the sales targets smoked too much you got an ulcer that kind of thing you know <laughs> whatever uh, and, and marshall said hang on a minute there's a bacteria here called helicobacter pylori F funny name but that, that was the bacteria he identifies in the stomachs of people with ulcers and that could have just that, that could just be a uh, you know a correlative thing didn't have to be causative and then he proves it's this bacteria that irritates the, the, the digestive system and brings out ulcers in the stomach gastric ulcers you know and to prove it he he eventually took drank some himself and he gave himself an ulcer you know so wow. and he took high dose high dose antibiotics killed it and the ulcer went away and that was and that was on, that was n equals one as we call this but you know? <laughs> so we, we needed more clinical trials but it's proven and this is revolutionary he won the nobel prize party for this because yeah, yeah. it was a very painful horrible disease you know you people drink a milk to try to balance the acid yes. all this stuff no it changed yeah, my dad's life old. when the when that breakthrough happened oh yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we love that. That's, that's a great, that's one of my best examples of how great science is. It is so, you know, an idea, hypothesis, test it, get data, back it up. Hey, presto, millions of people don't suffer as much as they did before because and nobody can, there's no misinformation with this one. You know what I mean? Mm, so, mm, but, no, that's so right. There, there it is. There's the facts in front of you. And that's the way it is. Yes. And, and so then the human, human papilloma virus, as you said as well, and cervical cancer, yeah. that connection was made. Now you're saying that there might be a, a connection that's being made uh, between uh, Epstein-Barr and MS. Yeah, uh, that's right. I'm still unclear as to whether or not you're saying that uh, we need to vaccinate people who've never been infected with Epstein-Barr because it, it, that would re reduce their, ch their risk, or even if you yeah, have had it, yeah. a vaccination would still reduce your risk. Unlikely, yeah. I think you've had it, it's probably too late. But we don't. I don't think we don't. No, it might be possible. But the idea would be if this if this holds up, Josh, in a sense, we will be vaccinating teenagers against Epstein Barr 
coronavirus and MS might go away. Wouldn't that be tremendous? Unbelievable. Be I also have a we need more data. Was recently diagnosed with MS and is quite oh, yeah, young. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it's a devastating, devastating disease. Now, again, there's been progress with MS. When I began my research, as I say, 30 years ago, there was almost nothing for MS. There's three or four options now, and they do help some people, you know, not everybody. So there has been a bit of progress there. But if this, this turns out to be the case, MS could be a thing of the past, which would be tremendous. You know? Wow. So when you think about this, are there other things, are there other ailments that you suspect might have a viral or bacterial cause that we just don't know yet? Yeah, we're, we're looking for them. That, that, I mean, what, one idea would be all these diseases are caused by an infection and that sets the immune system off kilter, basically, and then begins to attack our own tissues is the idea here. And often when you end up in your doctor's surgery, you've cleared the infection, you see, but the immune system is still burning away, you know, and it's right. re, re, recalibrated as it were. So, it's too, so you won't find the damn thing, will you? You know, mm. with the MS study, they, they'd taken samples of 18, 19 year olds. It was in the US Army, strangely, right? And everybody gives a blood sample when, when they sign up, basically, you know, they went to the archival material and then sit, try to figure out who, who went on to develop MS and saw this correlation then with Epstein-Barr So it was, it was retrospective in a way, you know, very clever, wasn't it, to do that in a sense, you see. So that's the kind of thing. But the trouble is, as I say, when often with these diseases, you're, you're trying to shut the stable door after the horse's bolted in a way to try to find that, you know. But still, there's this reasonable hypothesis, maybe they're all caused by viruses, all these diseases, you never know. Now, again, we need more evidence for that, but it's not an unreasonable hypothesis. Well, certainly, I mean, are you just talking about diseases that are, uh, that involve the immune system going haywire? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I mean this is also a problem with COVID as well, just to loop back to that, obviously, that, yeah. you know, when when the, when COVID does you in, and frequently, especially in, in the cases where younger people uh, die from COVID, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's because their immune systems are going absolutely berserk, and they've got this, yeah. is it a cytokine storm that just, you know, That's exactly right. throws yeah, their system yeah, out. precisely. Now, there's a great word for me, just I work on cytokines. I've worked on them since the mid-80s, really, you know. And many Aussies discovered cytokines, I'll have oh, hell, especially in the wee eye. Yes, so there you have Basking it. in the, uh, in the in inherited the glory, glory of my countrymen. In the well, well, let's get the, get the message out. Australia's contribution to the world of cytokines has been massive over the honest to God, I'm not, I'm not making it up. So, so it's great, you know, and you're right that this, this so-called cytokine storm, cytokines are basically the messengers of the immune system. And they, when you have an infection, they go up, wake up, the immune cells, which then clear the infection. That's the way the immune system works. You know, the trouble is that you get too many cytokines, the dreaded military analogy friendly fire, you know, you get collateral damage and then you get all the symptomology and COVID is exactly like that. What? And in general, we call this sepsis, of course, in, in the case of bacterial infection, same kind of thing, out of control immune. Well, why oh, is that right? The mystery. Oh, no, I didn't. I thought sepsis was just that the bacteria was getting a too too strong a foothold in you. I didn't realize that it was an immunological response. Oh, absolutely. Uh, sepsis is, again, an overactive immune response to a bacteria that goes systemic, as it were, and then your liver and your lungs and everything gets affected, you know, and then sepsis is still a lethal condition, you see. And again, we try to, my, I work on, the, on sepsis, that's trying to stop, that's almost impossible. As soon as they think the train starts to run, yeah. it's almost impossible to stop it, you see. But COVID is that, the other thing about COVID is um, the long COVID is a good example, Josh, because that, that seems to be the immune system off kilter. And persisting then from for months and even years, it looks like now in some people, right. and they've awful symptoms that go on for months and months. And again, the virus is now gone. Remember, more than likely, yeah. Instead, the immune system and reset you see is now being flipped to give you those symptoms as well. That's funny, isn't it? I hadn't really thought about that. There is no virus. There is no COVID virus left in you when you've got long yeah. COVID. It's you. That's you're right. Doing it. Yeah. 
Is there a That's way, exactly right. if, if all of this has to do with an overreaction of our uh, immune system, so many of these different uh, ailments, then rather than playing a game of whack-a-mole and sort of trying to hit each one uh, by either devising a vaccine to, take, to prevent you from, uh, you know, from being infected with what, whatever that, uh, that bug is in advance or a treatment after you have been uh, infected, could there be any grand sort of, you know, like physicists want something that's just printed on yeah. a T-shirt that is the, you know, the, the grand equation. Could there be a way of regulating the immune system be. so that it just doesn't go, there aren't these spikes and troughs? There could, there could well be. And in fact, one of the big advances in the past, say, 10 years is to find those key nodes, they're going to call them, you know, the master switch that gets flipped, you see. And if you could reverse that master switch, you could have, have a treatment for many different diseases. We know this, for example, steroids work in many inflammatory diseases. Mm. So they, they seem to control this central sort of switching mechanism that's, got, that's gone crazy. And all, steroids work in asthma. They work in colitis. They work in skin diseases. For that reason, now, now we'd love to know more about how steroids work, by the way. That's still a bit, a bit of an unknown. But certainly you're right. That kind of evidence would suggest there is some way to reset the whole thing which could be then useful across all these diseases, really. Could there be a utility in taking low-dose steroids? I mean, I sometimes get hives when I, uh, you know, when I eat some weird things. Um, I'll, uh, you know, just have some, yeah. what, look, what sort of look like mozzie bites on my body. And if I pop a couple of steroid tablets, like, a, you know, I mean, obviously we're not talking about like human growth horm hormone style steroids. We're talking about yeah. anti-allergy anti -allergy pills then it goes away in the same way that we, uh, we expect that there's probably a positive outcome on your heart if you take a half an aspirin a day. Could there be a, yeah. a similar case to, to be made for steroids? Well, well, again, the history of that's a great one, Josh. When that was discovered in the 50s, there was a guy called Hench who was a rheumatologist. He noticed that women, when they get pregnant, the arthritis went away if they'd rheumatoid arthritis. And he wondered why. And he knew there was changes in these steroids during pregnancy. And he got one of the steroids, a glucocorticoid, gave it to a man. And that guy's arthritis went away and, we, and they all thought, wow, we've now got a way to cure arthritis, you know, so there's great hope. But the trouble is the side effects. Steroids do many different things in your body. They don't just suppress the inflammatory process. So again, they can't be used routinely because you get skin thinning and various other things happen, sadly, okay. you see. And that can happen in science. So you think you've cracked it and then some little dirty fact crops up, you see. So you go, oh no, <laughs> you know, and then, and then you're going back to square one. But steroids are very useful especially in the acute inflammation. If you have a massive inflammatory reaction, some steroid will give you relief. In fact, an asthma is a good example, that, that uh, disease. Uh, steroids are used to treat severe asthma for that reason, because they can dampen, they put the fire out. Mm. But the trouble is they've got these, you can't use them chronically because they've got these other, other effects that aren't just to do with inflammation. Extraordinary stuff. Do you suspect that they're just to take a completely different pivot while we're talking about biology? How widespread do you think that biological systems are in the universe? Do you think about that? I do. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I like Asimov, you see. <laughs> My <laughs> yes, other favorite yeah. science fiction 2001, A Space Odyssey. Wasn't that a great idea? That the aliens have governed our evolution in a way, you know? Yeah. So, oh, yeah, I mean, there has to be life outside the Earth. It's just the law of averages, basically, you know? There's billions and billions of galaxies, isn't there? And there's lots of planets now. I mean, yeah, the big breakthrough in astronomy was the discovery of these exoplanets that are in the right kind of Goldilocks zone, as they call it. So more than likely that we will find, well, whether we find is the next question, but I, would, I wouldn't be at all surprised if life has evolved in other parts of the, of the universe, really. Do you think that consciousness has? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, that, 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 that mind you, uh, that is the central question in all biology now. What is consciousness? And we still have no clue, terrifyingly.
mm. in spite of what, and there's a few clues having said that there's been a bit of progress, but, uh, but still that that's, that's the greatest, the brain, the mind remains the greatest scientific conundrum of them all really. And we, we can't get near it in my view, Josh, either We had a conference in Dublin in 2018 addressing this and all the great neuroscientists came. And even at the end of that, we said, we scratched our heads literally and said, what the hell is this about? You know, it's the yeah. whole. I mean, consciousness is a product of biology, remember? So if there is a biological system elsewhere, consciousness more than likely would be part of that, I would think. Well, is it a, a consequence of biology? I mean, this is interesting. I've just been having a conversation with Toby Walsh uh, here in Sydney on my radio show, who's an artificial intelligence expert. He's got a new book out about AI. And, uh, you know, he was sort of saying the same thing that you just did, which is it's impossible to know whether or not machines will be conscious because we don't even know why we're conscious. Yeah. But yeah. If we, I mean, if you're not religious and you don't think that we have a soul and you think that, uh, you know, animals, most animals at least are, are conscious that there's something that it's like to be them as a result of what's going on inside their skulls, that there's some kind of complicated information processing going on that is causing consciousness to arrive, the sense of being alive to arise, then yeah. why couldn't a, an equally sophisticated network of information processing yeah. that's made out of silicon and, and microchips be conscious. Exactly. That doesn't have to be biological. You know, uh, it's, it's chemical. Let's put it that way. You right, know? right. Uh, and you can make a chemical system that's that that's a machine, can't you? But it's so complicated, it's almost impossible to envisage it, you see. I think we're like, you know, the great analogy is like if it, how do, aliens could be among us, but we can't even see them. Like when, when, an, ant, when an ant crawls on your boot, that ant doesn't know you exist, does he? Does he? And yet you're there with the ant, you yeah, know, whatever. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, they so could be hiding we're in like plain ants. We're, yeah, we're like ants crawling on some, some big creature's boot at the moment, basically. You're having to come yeah. to this kind of thing, you see. So, but they, they, I mean, it's such, a, it's such an interesting topic, this, obviously, and there is lots of research happening. The, the closest we've got to it, by the way, just I think it's like engrams. They spelled E-N-G-R-A-M-S. They are interesting little networks of neurons in the brain, and they seem to have some kind of emergent property. But, but still, like, we're a long way off understanding these kinds of things, in my opinion, anyway, if the truth be told. And what are they, Luke? What are engrams? Engrams, they're very complex kind of uh, neural networks is, is, is the best way to describe them in the brain. And you can manipulate them and create false memories amazingly by targeting these pathways, for instance. So we know m memory is a key part of consciousness, of course. So there's lots of work going on. I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I, I endanger myself now, but I think away regardless. <laughs> but um, I'm very interested in it, no more than anybody else, you know. So, so engrams, they reckon, are some of the closest we're getting to understanding memory, for instance, and memory is mm. a key part of consciousness, of course. Yeah. What happens when you lose your memory, uh, but you still have consciousness in dementia? But, great question. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, that's a good point. The people who, who memory, sadly, their their diseases are we need progress. I mean, whenever there's a desperate need for better insights to Alzheimer's, for instance, and yeah. again, there's big, big effort happening. Really good question that clearly memory begins to go. Why why do we remember stuff from childhood, not from later in life, for instance? You yeah. So, and, you know, so that's, gonna... the, that's the case with dementia as well. You can't remember what you did five minutes so. ago, but you can totally remember uh, what you were doing when you were five years old. Uh, it's yes. weird. So whatever, whatever was whatever was laid down there must have been so durable in a way. It still persists, you see. Whereas more recent memories don't. And again, that's another big mystery. But but that's an area that's so important because as the as we get older, as we know, the aging population dementia will go up a lot, you know. And it's it's such a horrible disease for people. So again, we'd like to see progress there, basically, you know. Mm. Hence, hence my clarion call. Become a scientist and get stuck in. <laughs> exactly. you, might make it, you might make something interesting. Have you heard the case, Luke, of the guy? I think he was a composer um, who had the most severe case of um, of amnesia 
uh, ever recorded. I think I can't remember what happened. He had a stroke or something. And he would, his brain would almost completely reset every five or six minutes so that he, it was almost like he was waking up into an entirely new universe. And uh, his wife has written a book about it, uh, which I really want to read. But he would, you know, he got to the point where he had a notebook, uh, a diary, and it was, it would be full of, uh, of sentences like, this is the real me now, uh, this is me now, and that would be scribbled out. And then underneath it, it would be like, no, 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 this is me. That was not me. This is the real, this is the true Good me God. now. And that would be scribbled yeah. out. It sounds like, uh, and it's incredible. It makes you wonder, who, who are you when you don't have content? Well, that's right. Yes, you'd wonder what's changing in his brain, in a sense, wouldn't you? Where that could be imaged in some way. The big advance in neuro, neurobiology was the invention of the functional MRI machine. Mm. You can follow bits of the brain working and changing and so on. You know, that was a huge advance. But you'd love to, that'd, that'd be, in fact, that, would be, that, that person would be a great subject to study, wouldn't they, scientifically? Yes. Except every five minutes he'd, he'd try to, he wouldn't know why he's in an MRI. He'd, he'd, That's he'd the strange Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> have to strap yeah, it in. Yeah. Yeah, and was his personality changing every five minutes as well? What a terrifying prospect! Yeah, I don't think that it was. As well. Yeah, I don't think yeah, it was. Right, he was, he was the same guy, yeah. but uh, you know, all of right. a sudden, just yeah. had no, 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 no past. Um, right. So, just pivoting back to your field of expertise, then, um, what what's the basic? Like, can you just explain what our immune system is actually doing? I don't have. For me, the immune system is just a metaphor. Like when I talk about the vascular system, I can picture veins and arteries and like when yeah. we talk about other aspects like i sort of have an image in my head of the dna double helix or something like that but the immune system like what actually is it yeah it's just loads of different cell types really that, that's where the complexity comes from it began the first studies began in the early sort of 20th century when they begin to notice what became white blood cells going into sites of infection. And what are those white blood cells? And what are they doing? You know? And then scientists began to study these cells and they began to realize that the cells were making interesting things. Antibodies being a great example. They kind of lock onto a bacteria and kill it, say, or allow the immune system to digest it in various ways. So, so it's a very complex network of different cell types making sort of, um, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, weapons and, and making ammunition and making all kinds of things to fire at the infectious agent. So it evolved basically to fight bacteria, viruses and parasites and so on. Right. But it is, it is complex because it has to be regulated very carefully, as we just discussed, because if it goes out of control, you, it is like an army. We use that analogy a lot, actually, you know, and then you have a war against the invader. And you clear the invader with all your weapons and your machinery and all that. Uh, sometimes it becomes a civil war where the, your army attacks your own tissues is the way to think of it, you see. So, so the army is the best metaphor we have really for it. I mean, I'm across all the metaphors, Luke, but I'm not across what's actually happening. Like, so I had COVID a few months ago, as uh, many, yeah. you know, many people have in the past year. Um, I was, uh, you know, a triple vax, vaxxed. It was mild. But what's actually happening when, so I'm feeling like I'm feeling really tired when I start getting COVID, right? Yeah. And I start thinking, oh, this is this isn't great. Uh, right. What if you zoomed in on a particular part of my anatomy? Yeah. Would you be able to see a virus? Would you be able to see my cell, uh, you know, a cell of yeah. mine doing something physically to we, a absolutely. actual virus? We could indeed. We can see exactly what's going on, and we can re we can do that in a lab as well by taking cells and infecting them. We use that as a model, obviously, as well as infecting people. But we can take animals and infect them, 
and we can see the virus, we can see the immune system taking up the virus. What happens is the virus, the first step in the process is the immune system senses the virus. Your, your, your immune cells are bristling with sensors to try to look for viruses, basically, you know. And the main way we sense this virus is through sensing its RNA, because as you might know, it's just an RNA virus. There are sensors in your body that pick up on the RNA and lit latch onto it, literally. You know, one is called rig eye for instance, and that's in every cell in your body. If the virus is there, the rig eye detects it and that sets the alarm now. It's always a virus intruder, you see. And the rig eye then turns on a set of genes that are immune genes that begin to combat the virus. A very good example, I think, is on interferons. And again, dare I say, the Aussies have made discoveries in interferons <laughs> as well. In fact, a shout out to one of my best mates, Paul Herzog, he's in Monash. He's been working on interferons for years, Paul has, you know. Wow. So the interferons, they get made, interferons get made. And guess what they do? They stop the virus replicating. They're a great thing, you know, because the virus can't divide. If you stick interferons on a cell, it shuts down the cell's machinery that the virus hijacks, by the way. As you might know, the virus is it's very simple. It hasn't got many genes. It hijacks our our own bodies in a way to copy itself. The interferons stop all that. And, and that's why kids are so resistant, by the way, because kids make a massive amount of interferons. Uh -huh. So if a child in, inhales the virus in their upper airways and their noses, and other, they make a huge amount of interferon. And that stops the virus in its tracks. It can't divide anymore. As you get older, the reason why older people are susceptible is your immune system begins to go off the boil, like many yeah. parts of your body. Yeah. You know? And now the virus is the foothold. And we know the interferon response. That's one example, Josh, in a way. But I can give you loads, obviously. But, and again, Peter Doherty, a, a, yeah. a Nobel Prize winning Australian, remember, who went over. He was the guy who discovered how the immune system presents bits of viruses to see it, you know? Right. So, so the thing of the MHC, it's called, you know? And they latch onto the virus. They take a piece of it and show it to the, the T cells. The T cells are very important cell type within the immune system. And Peter got the Nobel Prize because before his discovery, we didn't really know that part of it, you know, how, how bits of virus were being shown as it were, to the, to the key troops, I suppose. Um, and then and Peter's discovery was so important because it, it gave us a big insight into how the immune system sees viruses. Right. And this, this happens with COVID. You can see with COVID. You can see it's called antigen presentation is the name for this, by the way. Mm. You're presenting an antigen from the virus and now the immune system can see it, you know. Opening up a little box and uh, like a little briefcase and saying, here you go. This is what this, that's what this yeah, is like. Yeah, you. that's what I'm, yeah. And uh, you're uh, the man for the analogies, no more than yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'll it's, give you that. I'll give you that. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned Peter, Peter Doherty because uh, his outfit, the Doherty Institute, is the, is the main, is probably the most prestigious uh, yeah. institute in Australia now. So all of the, all Australians, I mean, the government was getting its COVID advice from the Doherty Institute and Australians yeah. are very familiar with that name from getting a lot of uh, public yeah. health advice during the pandemic and Josh, from them. Even even better, he's Irish, remember? <laughs> he's, he's told me he? anyway. <laughs> I think he's traced his ancestry back to the legal or something. Well, I suppose so Doherty. Like, I suppose like Doherty. Doherty. Yeah, you'll get away with it. Um, I mentioned aspirin with regards to heart disease, but I'd forgotten about aspirin's role, aspirin's role as an anti-inflammatory uh, yeah. as well. Can you tell us the background to the development of I can. aspirin? I can indeed. I did my PhD in London in the place where that was discovered, actually, where aspirin was shown how it works. It was a mystery for a long time. That goes back to herbal stuff, Josh. It was first shown that willow bark was anti-inflammatory, you see, from the willow tree. That's a, like a herbal thing going back hundreds of years. Mm. Someone purifies from willow things called salicylates from salix, which is the name of the willow. And then salicylates were, were, were the basis for aspirin. And it was made in, in the early 1900s as an anti-inflammatory. Nobody knew how it worked, right? Finally, in the 70s, they discovered that aspirin blocks things called prostaglandins. Now, prostaglandins are made by your immune system and they cause pain. 
and swelling, you know, these prostaglandins. Again, another chemical factor in the reason. And aspirin stops production of prostaglandins. So, hey, presto, that was discovered. And then on the back of that then came drugs like ibuprofen, paracetamol. They all do the same thing. They all stop prostaglandins. And that's why they're anti-inflammatory, you see. And, and they're useful in right. certain situations. Yeah, why do they, they don't st- stop the disease. Why do they stop pain? Well, prostaglandins will sensitize nerve endings. You, pa- pain is the part of the response to infection, by the way. You, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if you damage your hand and it gets injured, say, you, you want to guard it, don't you? So, so pain is a, is, a, is a normal response to protect that damaged tissue. Stop you using your hand, basically, to repair, you know? Mm. But the trouble is, it can go off kilter again and the pain can be too intense and all the rest of it. So, and prostaglandins are made in that injury situation and then they're promoting that pain response and aspirin will stop that is pain always a response to something real what about when i pop a ibuprofen because i've got a headache yeah yeah well again the headache is being caused by prostaglandins up, up in your head now basically causing vasodilation and, and enhancing the pain response there you see and that's that can be a bad thing you know mm, mm. and that, that that area pain is a very important area remember we need better painkillers that aren't addictive, but that's a huge research area, to be honest, because pain is a feature of any diseases, you know? Yeah. Now, prostaglandins are causing what's called acute pain, so just in response to injury or whatever, you know? There's more chronic pain, and we need better ways to, to, to treat that in many ways. So so pain is a very important area of research. Uh, I won't keep you forever, Luke, but uh, let's just wrap up by thinking about how we can best make people scientifically literate without without resorting to education, 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 because I know that you're an educator. Yeah. What's the yeah. hanging fruit for people who want to, who are committed to the to the project of being reasonable and of uh, yeah. following evidence to to do so? Are there cultural or communal or I don't know educational things that individuals can do? Well, as you said, uh, the likes of Carl Sagan and so on, there's some fantastic popular science books out there. I'd, I'd start with that because they're so superbly written, as you know, it's brilliant, you know, there's a whole, whole, whole range of them in a way, you know, so, so re- reading the, the, the popular science books is great. And obviously through TV and media and our conversation helps, I hope, you know, because just, just, just open your mind to science is the trick here in a sense and find, find a writer, no more than in literature. I bet there's certain writers you hate, you know, you might find a writer you like, you know, uh, whatever, whatever floats your boat in a sense, you know, just, just get stuck in because science is, is the, in my opinion, anyway, science is one of the most wonderful things we have as a species because it's a way to explain the world, explain the world. And then secondly, maybe get something useful that we need out of it. And, and COVID is the great example of that, you know, but without science, we've been in a really bad place with COVID. Uh, like if, if, if COVID had cropped up in medieval times, it would have killed millions, you know? And yet, well, it did kill, stop, did kill millions. And indeed, it did. But I, yeah, but I'm talking about <laughs> could have killed, you know, yeah, yeah, hundreds of millions, it, it, hundreds of millions, precisely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, so, in other words, science, science has stopped that eventuality, which is great, really. You know, yes. all that knowledge. I will. Uh, I'll add to the reg- to the general recommendation of books that uh, that Cosmos by Carl Sagan is amazing. Uh, yeah. Dawkins' best book, I think, uh, about this sort of about the sort of majesty of science is uh, is called Unweaving the Rainbow. Uh, yep. And Sagan's best book about it is, called, is the Demon Haunted World. I think it's subtitled right. "Science as a Candle in the Dark," and it's uh, it's yeah. it's incredibly prescient when you read some of the passages uh, from decades ago. He's writing about a yep. sort of scientifically illiterate society that sort of dabbles in witchcraft and astrology and things like that, and you know yep. reads their horoscopes and elects uh, uh, sort of populist uh you know celebrities as their leaders and doesn't really think yeah. through things very rationally and you sort of think about trump and johnson still resonates right? yeah we haven't <laughs> we haven't changed much have we sat to judge over those stones of years uh well you're doing your bit luke uh so thanks for being with us and it's, it's lovely to talk to you take care 
Great. Thanks very much, Josh. That was that was great fun. Thanks a lot. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.